Welcome to The Backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf. I'm your host, here with our co-host, the professor. Professor, top of the morning to you, sir. Oh, good morning. I'm tired. I'm on coffee number two already, which I never do in the morning anymore. Um, but here we Whoa. are. Whoa. Uh, extra caffeinated. What, no sleep last night? Were you guys uh, staying up late watching... Uh, Top Gun. We we again, in fact again. did finish Maverick again for number seven hundred and twenty one. I think times that we've uh, watched that movie. For, for those listening, like, and I think everybody probably has uh, maybe a movie or a show that they do this with. If you fall asleep too, but I am just fascinated by the professor and his wife Claire watch the newest Top Gun. Is it Maverick? Maverick. That's their that's their go to at bedtime. I mean, isn't that like adrenaline fueled? I've only seen it once. I haven't even seen it twice yet. But your your love for Tom Cruise in this iteration of Top Gun, it, like you would think you'd go back and watch the original too, maybe once in a while. But uh, that is a lot of views. That's a lot of views. I tell you what, I think it's one hour eighteen minutes in is like his test run scene of the. Uh, of when they're trying to plan for the mission, and we just start there, and then just go all the way through, and it's it's a, it's a glorious watch. Well, just very, the, the just beautiful the revving, the revving of jet yeah. engines must just really put you into slumberland, huh? Oh, you guys get nice and cozy. You have great <laughs> dreams afterwards, that's for sure. Great dreams afterwards, but no, it was. Do you guys have Do you guys have nicknames for each other? Like, did she call you Goose? <laughs> oh. Is she uh, Iceman? I'm gonna have to. We're gonna have to come up with something on that. That's, we got a long drive later today to go visit some family for a, a birthday party. I'm, we're gonna have to come up with some uh, <laughs> some call names. Um, I'm sorry, I'm giving you a hard time off the the hop of this show. <laughs> uh, Shout out to our friends at Titleist for sponsoring today's podcast and supporting New Club. Uh, they've supported us all through the season. Oh, by the way, Happy New Year, Professor. Uh, we're, this is our first release of the 2024 calendar year. So Happy New Year to our friends at Titleist and Happy New Year uh, to you, sir. You as well. Um, I got to say, got to give Titleist a shout out. Um, went and got fitted and uh, did a wedge fitting actually with John H., one of the top guys with Voki. Um Spent, I don't know, two hours with me, two and a half hours with the SM9s, just uh, messing around with bounce and grind. Uh, and I was tens, though, right? I think I some tens. Yeah, the tens aren't out yet. Um, they're not, they're not in the wild. Um, the nines will carry over to the tens in terms of if you go get fit right now, you know, some minimal changes in the tens, some important changes in the tens, but nothing that you can't fit in the nines. And I gotta say, it's it's probably the best two hours I've spent in golf in terms of like for my game. Um, I would go, I would even go to venture to say, I mean, from a strokes game perspective, certainly irons and drivers are more important, but from a performance perspective, I was blown away the difference. You know, I'm, I'm I've been struggling with the yips on Bermuda for, I struggled for a long time. And then a buddy of mine, Kyle Stiles has helped me out get through that. And now my chipping's become a strength, but what was still amazing to me was, as he switched to the different grinds, like I always thought, oh, my technique's a little problem, right? Like that's why I get a little into into it a little steep maybe and I dig a little bit. And it was unreal as he started switching the grinds. Like, okay, we're going to keep the same bounce. Everything's the same, just changing the grinds. And a club would go, one club would dig completely and I'd chunk it or whatever. Then he'd change the grind up and it would just sweep along wet, sticky, in the shade, muddy Bermuda and the club would just sweep along. And so he sat there for two hours and we would hit everything. Full wedges, half wedges, pitches, chips, you know, off soft stuff, off hard stuff, just finding 
uh, honestly, the grind that just makes this club always slide along it for my technique. And it was unreal, just grind changes, how much it changed the trajectory and the interaction with the turf, um, where I left that like so much more confidence in my wedge game that like, oh, my technique's actually not a problem at all. It's just matching the right soul with the technique I have. I'm real shallow, you know, just making sure I'm with the right club that works with that because I do get in to the ground a little bit behind the ball sometimes. Um, so with the right grind now, uh, that'll avoid that becoming a chunk shot and will actually still perform well. Um, so everybody, like if you're going to make a resolution this year, fitted with for wedges um, and definitely the tireless approach with the you know, they are the grind masters out there in terms of the shape of the of the grind on the sole, not just the bounce, you know, having so many different options to do that. And they're going to have I mean, how many total... No, that's that's so timely that you shared this because obviously a couple episodes ago, yeah. I was like, uh, the, t- the folks at Titleist that kind of helped me realize that I was trying to just uh, adjust bounce and I'm not even looking at grind. Like I've had the similar or same grind for a long time. And they're like, God, we wish we could almost remove bounce from the club so that people will pay more attention to the Mm -hmm. grind. And now I kind of hear why. I mean, how many different varieties of grinds did he have? Uh, Oh, I don't even know off the top of my head. I want to say, I mean, it's definitely more than four that they have in their arsenal. I don't know if it's eight or 12. Um, But it's, it's a lot of different grinds. And yeah, what he did, like when we went over to some of the wet, sticky stuff, he put four or five different heads in his pocket that were all the same bounce, but all had different grinds, right? And then it was like, okay, let's go through four and like identified, okay, one and three are the winners right now. Okay, let me grab a couple more different ones. Let's play with these. This one's going to be one, you know, take a 58 and take it one degree weak and a 60 and one degree strong. And that changes the balance characteristics, right? So it was like, let's dial in the grind and think about that. So you have the, the, the turf interaction, the leading edge sort of thing and what's going on there. Now let's play with the bounce a little bit and what's one that goes a little higher. Let's get in the sand, which one performs and gets the sand out of the way. And that's where they we were able to then match like, okay, this worked on the turf, but when I took it to the sand, now all of a sudden I wasn't getting into the sand. It was skipping through the sand, right? And hitting that low, that low flyer out of the sand. It's like, no, we need something that, that gets into the sand a little bit more and displaces it. So that's changed the bounce. You know, we go a little bit for me, a little bit more shallow, a little bit less bounce on this one. So we're going to get into the sand a little bit more and dig into the sand where we, but with the grind is going to help me glide on the grass. So what, uh, and last question and we'll move on, but like what, um, I don't know all the grinds off the top of my head, so I'm not going to ask you there, but like what actual bounce degrees did you end up with through your, your what, three wedges you probably carry? Yeah. Four, let, um, let me give listeners, give me a second and pull up the email and I'll tell you. Yeah. So we actually, I'm going to tell you exactly <laughs> what I did. Um, Let's see where are we at. So we went actually. He ended up doing what's really cool. We got down to. Uh, I'm getting better at chipping. You know, I'm working through those yips, and so he's like, "All right, we're going to do one wedge that's going to work for you right now." But then, as your technique gets even a little bit better, this one you're going to grow into. So right now, it digs a little bit with my technique right now, but over time, it's actually going to become a little bit better. So we went. All right, I'll just go right through a 4810F. So that's like the pitching wedge. You can only get it in the F grind. Um, and that's my gap wedge. Um, just, I come in a little shallow, the ball tends to ride faces with the wedges. So for me, the 48 degrees only going to go what like a stronger player's gap wedge is going to go 110, 115 is is sort of my max there. But then getting down the wedges, 54 degree, um, that's grind is what we've got on that. Then we go to, so 54 degree S grind. 
Um, gosh, ten degree mounts. Yeah, ten, ten degree. Okay. Yep, ten degree mounts. Now this is where he like this is why the fitting was so beneficial because when we went into the the sixty degree. We were able to play like, where's my game at right now? What type of turf do I play off of? Where's my game going? And what other type of turfs do I play off? So he also was like, okay, you go over to Scotland. You play some firm turf. We need, like, this is the one the pros play with. You need this one in your bag for that firm turf. This other one won't. So he put me in both a 58 um, with four degrees bounce T grind that um, we bend one degree weak on loft. So it takes it to a 59 degree. That's for the gapping approach that they have right on yardage. Like they're still big. And, that's what, and the, what turf is that intended for? That's my current, if I remember this right, um, I need to email and make sure I'm remembering this right. That is my current like technique, right? So still soggy turf. I kind of need that. Like I'm a little shallow. Like I'm going to stick the other one. Yeah. Um, yeah so okay. less bounce, and that's going to help me get through the sand a little bit more. That I'm going right. to dig a little bit more in the sand and have more of an explosion, get the ball up rather than like because I'm a shallow, more bounce, I'm skidding into the ball. Because, um, like, ra- yeah, rack, rack 60s that you'll see, whatever, the pro shop typically aren't going to be at four degrees. Typically, you're going to see like eight on mm-hmm. a 60, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Right now, I think I'm gaming a 12 degree. Um, yeah. And then, but then he has me in a 60 um, degree that's a D grind with 12 degrees bounce. And that's the one I'll kind of grow into over time. Um, And we're bending that one degree strong. So both of them end up at 59 degrees. That changes the bounce characteristics a little bit too. I think that actually pulls them. If I I could be wrong, Ryan Brath can, you know, give us a, a sub tweet or something like that to correct this. But I think by one degree weak with the four degree bounce and then one degree strong with the 12 degree bounce that brings them into each other just a little bit on the bounce um, because of changing the loft. Um, but that's the one that I'll grow into a little bit over time that I'll, um, as my technique improves. So then that was a cool oh, thing too. He's like, you know, this is where you're going. So I'm, I'm going to order what you want, but like, this is the one you want to order for now. And like, I would go ahead and order this one and just have it on you. And, and when the turf gets firm too, you'll want to use this one. And he's like, that gives you the option to switch on the, on the 60 degree, which is, you know, something a lot of pl- good players do as they're changing Boy, up. I, I love it. I mean, a little gearhead session to start the show. So thanks for sharing. I'm like uber curious because I, I think, you know, you play this game for a long time, you think you know things and then it, it, there's so much more to it. And, and like this revelation for me was around grind. So I am really looking forward to, I was ready to put in my order based on all my past wedges. Uh, but based on what you're saying here uh, and, and what the engineers at Titleist basically told me, I need to slow my roll, get myself a fitting and start playing around with some grinds and bounces and degrees and everything else. It's, that, that's fascinating. Also, I didn't know you were struggling with the yips, man. That's talk, uh, buddy. We host a golf podcast. I, I know some sports psychologists we can get on here to talk to us. There actually is one in particular around performance uh, anxiety, Kevin, that is a little related to, God, what does she call it? I mean, it's yips, but yips affect people in so many different things. Like it's, it, we think about it from a golf standpoint, but my God, there's people that have it for like work related things yeah. or, you know, uh, anytime they pick up a knife or people like, like there it's, it's a common thing far beyond it, performance anxiety or like the, God, I'll think of the term that she uses, mm-hmm. but yeah, well, let's reach out to somebody and make that a topic for 2024. Love it. Love it. I mean, I've been there. Cause Driver I've been there. Gibbs. I've <laughs> 
Chipping yips, putting yips. I got got an arm lock putter that is (laughs) is, a historical record of struggling with that very thing. Um, I did, so I I hit the professor with a text about 30 minutes ago. Because it's the new year, I thought we'd do some uh, golf resolutions, but I don't want to step on, I I know you like finding a flow professor. I don't want to step on your fact of the day or your educational material. So why don't you hit us with that first? And then I want to hear some uh, some golf resolutions. Yeah, since we're on the resolutions, a quick one re- regarding resolutions. You know, all of us, I think, or a lot of us set resolutions for the year. And then one of the biggest mistakes you can do is set a bunch at the beginning and say, hey, here's my seven resolutions. And you try to do them all in January. Um, so don't do that. That's that's not that's not smart. Are you saying my twenty my list of twenty one golf re- resolutions I wrote down in the last thirty minutes isn't isn't the way to go? Yeah, that's not the way to go. You're not going to stick to any of them because you're going to burn yourself out. Um, but there's sort of I'll use I'll just describe it in an informal way. So this isn't the the pure science or, or technical way to describe it. But there's something called stacking habits um, or stacking anything. And the way to think about your habits is go ahead and set your habits for the year or your resolutions for the year. Like say I want to these are the things I want to accomplish. But then think of how you can stack them. So that means like start with mm-hmm. one, focus on that one. And then okay. what would be a natural one to build in after that? And there's lots of different approaches you can take to how you structure your stacking. But a really productive one is start with like a hard resolution, a hard habit. This could be exercising, I don't know, five days a week or something like that, right? Something that you just know you typically burn out on. You know, you get in three weeks, you love it, you're in it. Then you get into February, maybe you take a day off and then that turns into two days off and then all of a sudden it's gone by March, Right. So this is where stacking um, becomes important. And what you can do is actually stack a resolution or habit you enjoy on top of it, right? So let's say exercise is your tough one. That's one that doesn't stick. But you love to read. Don't read, don't maybe even abandon reading completely while you're building up this new exercise one. Then when you feel like you have that set, okay, yeah, I did it four weeks in a row, five days a week. Let me build in a reading habit, a reading resolution of, five days a week that say, I'm going to read an hour in the evening. And if you can, or build it into your day at some point, stack it with the other resolution. So, okay, after exercising, I like to read. My reward, I'm now building in a reward for exercising, and that's going to be reading. So after exercising, I'm now going to read for an hour, and I'm doing that five days a week. And then you can even alternate resolutions you like versus resolutions that are hard for you. And you can just try to build them off of each other so they become linked together. Um, that's one strategy in terms of accomplishing your resolutions um, and doing it in a very systematic way that'll that'll work versus trying to do everything Stack at them once. up. Stack them up. I like that. Yeah, once you get some progress going with uh, with one, then you utilize it for, for the next one. But yeah, too many at one time definitely yeah. is a recipe for disaster. I guess I'll take that to our... Uh, so we got... Today's episode, we got to get to the second half of our uh, fixtures, really rounding out all the registrations for our fixtures in 2024. Well, one of them will be the May registration for our 2025 international trip to England, to foggy London town. And so uh, we already talked about the Southeast Coast, but now we get to talk about about 25 miles southwest of London uh, the Heathlands and Sunny, uh, Sunningdale, uh, Swinley Forest, all these unbelievable golf courses that, you know, are, are really bucket list. And if they're not, they should be. And, uh, I'm excited to chat with you about some of these. Did you do your homework professor? 
on our courses in England. Oh no, I'm staying pretty ignorant to, to these. I'm like, you, I'm letting you lead that conversation. Man, I carry so much water around here. Uh, that's okay. I do. I do have plenty of research to share and talk about with these these course, courses in the Heathland, the Surrey Sandbelt. But uh, but before we get there, I thought it'd be fun just to do some some resolutions. So. Uh, do you have one or two, maybe three golf res- resolutions? Maybe this will be some fuel for people uh, out there thinking about their own game. I, I do. You know, being the pop quiz format, I don't have them actionable yet and real concrete in terms of, you know, all the the tips of what actually good structured resolutions are. But number one, um, just in terms of general ethos resolution is to make golf enjoyable again. I definitely got into a, a run this year where, you know, golf just wasn't that much fun. I wasn't wanting to get out the course to play. Um, when I got out there, it was I was I was having fun, but like just you know, being home or being in the office, I wasn't driven to go play, and it wasn't something I looked forward to or was excited about. So, really, working to get back to where golf is enjoyable to get uh, again, where I have that itch every day. You know, two o'clock hits on the office clock or three o'clock, and it's like, all right, what, do we need to get any more done? No, we don't. Let's just go to the golf course and and play and mess around. You know, if it's hitting balls, chipping, going out and playing six holes, you know, half set, whatever it is. That's that's goal number one is make golf fun again. Nice. How many do you have? How many on your list right now? I have I'll, three. So do you want to go I'll back and forth? Up, I got like two and a half. Yeah, let's go back and forth. I'll I'll have a third by the end of this. So I I think this this stemmed from something you said on a episode a couple chats ago. But uh, my number one is to watch less golf and play more golf. Mm. Watch less golf and play more golf. So what my hope is is sometimes it's easy to just make an excuse to not go to the golf course and on the weekends. First off, I'm like I'm tired, right? <laughs> like you, you mm-hmm. got a, a busy week. I'm probably busier than I've ever been, and it's easy to turn on golf and get your golf fix. But let's face it, like professional golf is a bit of a dumpster fire. It's not what really fills you up. You know, it gives you kind of that sensation of you know, thinking about golf, watching golf, hitting your own shots. But it's not the same as walking a course and doesn't watching golf on television riddled with commercials does not fill you up the way that it's, you know, being out there both physically and mentally and spiritually does on a golf course. So that's one of my resolutions is instead of you know, easily defaulting into, oh, I'll, I'll turn on whatever tournament is this week or, uh, and, and even majors, like majors, I kind of do move the calendar around because I really love watching major golf as I, I'm sure many of us do. But even that I'm thinking for 2024, I'm going to, I'm going to say watch less golf. And so every time I turn on the TV to watch golf, I'm going to ask myself, could I play golf right now? And the answer is no to that a lot of times if I got the kids or something else. But uh, anyways, watch less golf, play more golf. What's your number two resolution? Read more golf. Um, Mm. And that that definitely relates to the first resolution that reading about golf really engages and motivates me. And I think back, you know, when I got back into golf 2015 through, through 19, a lot of that was motivated by just reading about golf. So regardless if it's some of the old writers of golf, the Bernard Darwins of the world, all the way up to sort of the new writings on golf, especially around golf course architecture. Um, so getting in and reading more about that and just learning more about golf, learning about its history and roots, and really learning about course design as well. I want to dive back into that. I've been a little bit um, separated from the course design world in terms of how much I was consuming earlier, you know, several years ago as I moved back, you know, into the analytics and practice world. I want to get back a little bit to the to the golf course design world and, and read and become just more informed about that so I can just have a better eye for what's, you know, going on in those in those movements. 
I love it. I because you're a dangerous man already, I think, in that category. But if you, you know, extend your breadth of knowledge with, with classics and new stuff, and I'll even get you started. One of our upcoming guests, Kevin, is a man that spent a lot of time dedicated to the architecture of Seth Rayner and Charles Blair McDonald. So you know, I got Scotland's gift I can loan you of Charles Blair. I also just picked up, shout out Back Nine Press, Jim Sitar, uh, wrote a phenomenal book about the golf course of Seth Rayner. We're going to have those guys on too. So yeah, we're going to have some architecture conversations coming up in 2024. And why don't you, why don't you get some ammo? I need, from, I need to pick up, books. I need to pick up Jim's book. That's what Jim Sitar, um, John Cavalier helped him out. John Cavalier, And then, yeah. uh, did Michael Wolf? Michael Wolf, you got it. Yeah, so those, you got to hit up those guys to to join us here on the bag drop. Yeah, I think that's a must must purchase, and it's my fault for not doing that yet. Sorry, Jim, uh, good friend. Um, obviously, I'm not being a good friend by not having purchased it yet. And but obviously, that, I am a good to friend, be a, Jim. <laughs> Jim, just I don't want to I don't want to make sure you miss it. Obviously, Jim, I am the one who's being the good friend, supporting the cause. J- Jim, as uh, a fellow academic, knows we're not we're not good at being timely, especially when it comes to like purchasing things and spending money. We're, I think we have I most this, academic have a little friction problem where they just don't want to hit that purchase button even if they know they're going to eventually they just sit there and stare at it for a while and that's the stakes are too low for you guys in academia (laughs) the stakes are too low man you guys need more profit and loss statements oh we don't Um, i was just talking with a friend about that last (laughs) night we don't live we are not prepared for the real world the longer i'm in the academic (laughs) world the more i acknowledge and realize it I am not prepared for the real world anymore i'm just gonna hide out here Uh, uh, no So my, my number two, it's related to number one, but I want to play less golf more often. Play, play I mean, less golf play less more often. Go, golf more. I'm go. We're go on. I'm I'm so, I'm perplexed. Play <laughs> less golf more often. So okay. I wrote that one down, thinking it made total sense. But now that I said it out loud, I'm like, oh, maybe I gotta explain that. What I mean by that is small increments. So I want to play nine holes. I want to play six holes. I want to mm. hit a half bucket instead of a full bucket. And it, it really just stems from I've never been busier. I got two kids. I'm running a company. And so it's been harder for me to do 18-hole regulation golf. And, I, and I've noticed, and this is mostly on the home front, like I, I'm very fortunate with New Club that mo, I get to play, and I looked at it for 80, 90% of my rounds in 2023 were outside of the, my my home my home golf. Like okay. I, I'm, I'm a travel golfer now, even though I'm playing with local members in Atlanta and local members in Chicago and our fixtures are travel-based. But um, I want to play more at home. But the reality is my life's changed. And so I'm not able to really block off the same amount of time and do a 36-hole day as much as I would like. And so, no, no, this isn't woe is me. It's just wanting to have more golf in my life. And so I, I, um, I want to just pop out for an hour and a half and and hit hit some balls or just go to the the putting green chip and putt uh at the local muni down the street from me um i also my daughter's three now and this is most mostly inspired by the comments of uh padre carrington during the pnc yeah. father son i don't know if you caught that or any of the listeners right now caught that. wonderful yeah it was so inspired like he is such a thoughtful man and he talked about how do you get kids in the game? And you, you got to take them somewhere where you're at, at ease, where you're not stressed, and you can't, you got to leave before they're tired. And I thought about that. And again, my kids are young, but even I, I think that goes for us too, like for our own enjoyment is don't overdo it, you know, have some moderation and, 
and uh, leave with a little bit left in the tank. And I thought about that uh, as as going to the course if if I'm with you know, my wife is watching the little one and I'm with Nora who now can kind of run around and do some things. Maybe we just go for 45 minutes. Maybe we go for a half hour. Like that, that's what I mean by play less golf more often. Yeah. I like that a lot. And how about Podrick? He should be the ambassador of the game, right? In terms of he, a forward, would, just front men making decisions and participating in decision-making. Yes. Yes. The only thing I'll say is I know he's probably one of those guys that He's such, uh, he's he's a little bit like you, where he's too smart for his own good, I think, or he's thought about so many nuances of everything that sometimes his, his you know, I think he's getting, he's actually, now that I say that, he's getting pretty good at simplifying what he has experienced and known. But prior, like when he first started doing the, uh, swing tips, patties. Oh, yeah. I, I thought it was just like boiling the ocean. I mean, it was like so much info. I'm like, holy shit, dude, you're gonna blow people's minds. But now, now I think he's probably learned that from talking more to amateurs and everything. But yeah, you're right, man. Just such a a thoughtful, uh, sincere guy in the game of golf. Yeah, you hear him. I mean, that's when he spoke about the children and and that sort of aspect and and view of the game. That's what growing the game means. Like that the perspective he was embodying there, like that's the way we should be talking about growing the game, right? Growing the game isn't through sales or this and that. It's like, what is the humanistic experience entering the game and and what we want for, you know, someone coming to the course for the first time and his ability to just talk about that stuff. Yeah, like that's a great point now and like kind of two to five minute digestible ways that aren't super technical. He's he's grown a lot in that way. Yeah. What's your uh, number three? I'm gonna go with an easy, easy one. Um, uh, from a place of privilege, go to Sweden's Cove more often. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I got uh, you just you know, got back. Just, yeah, just got back yesterday. That's why I'm so tired today. Honestly, we didn't play a ton of golf. I mean, 36 holes. You know, nothing. That's less than we normally play out there. But it was cold, so body expended a lot of energy trying to stay warm. And that's why I woke up this morning like a truck hit me. Not you do, physical, you don't muscle do cold wise. Well. Just, I know just the tired. professor. You don't. Yeah, do we cold don't do well. We don't that's do why you well. live where you live. But no, going up there to play more. Like, there's no reason for me not to go up. I, you know, I'm privileged not only um, with my relationship with the the crew up there, but in the academic world, like, I can cut out on a Tuesday and go play golf, and there's really no consequences to that. And I just don't do that often enough. I don't take advantage of that luxury of being in this type of job. And I think next year I need to do that. And you just need to make an ex- just drive up there, play all day. And I think that you know relates back to number one too. Like that is my happy place and, and gives me pleasure with the game the more often i get up there and not only the course but sharing it with the the other crew the rest of the crew that's up there and getting to interact with them even there's days we just sit in the shed and talk for you know two hours or yesterday i spent an hour and a half with the damski and just sitting there catching up with him is just as meaningful as you know going out and burning in their loop on the course um so i'm gonna i'm gonna make it a goal maybe you know make an actionable maybe at least once a month you know making sure every you know 12 times at least 12 times this year i get up there and then everything after that being bonus. Awesome. That's, yeah, special place for you and, and many others, but that uh, you got to go to your happy places more, as much as you can. You know, life is short. I, I mm-hmm. uh, will support you in that endeavor. And if you need a, me- a, a guest for the member guest to finally get you a victory, you know, <laughs> you know where to find me. Um, the, uh, uh, my last one was don't be greedy. And this mm-hmm. mostly pertains to my golf game. And I wonder if people can relate to this. So I'll just share it. I 
when I work on my golf game, I tend to uh, have more variance. And so you as the performance coach could probably you know, teach me what this is about. But when, when I'm looking for marginal improvement, I, I notice that uh, I'll have regression and progression or just, you know, I, I'll lose my game for 18 holes because of something that I'm thinking about or something I'm trying to do. But I've, I've, the skill set I think I've developed the last decade and a half is like uh, an awareness of my golf game. And, and I've become so aware of it that I have almost like an old man game that, mm. that works. And I'm not saying it's like, it's not as flashy as my favorite golf probably, but if I'm going out to play so, like a, a good solid round and, and it's a, it's a match that matters or it's something else, it's just don't get greedy. Like don't try to hit the perfect shots. Don't try to, uh, have the exact ball flight that, you know, I, I want go with what what is consistent and solid. And for me, it's this little push draw <laughs> to get into specifics. It's this mm-hmm. little push draw that has kind of a, 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 a push miss uh, bias, but, but when it's on, it comes back right back to target lines. And, uh, and, and it's, it's just, it's more, it's enjoyable golf because I know what it's doing. And mm-hmm. as soon as I go, you know, to the range and focus a little bit too much on swing, or I'm trying to do something, or I really you know, saw a pin that needed a cut and I really want to get that cut now. That that's what I used to do to play my best golf and really go low. But it's it's I think 2024 isn't going to be the year that I can dedicate a lot of reps to mm-hmm. golf, to my game. Therefore, I'm trying I'm going to try to remind myself of that and and have an expectation for myself that is reasonable. And and if it's if it's reasonable then it's going to be um, well, lean on that that version of my golf game that is consistent, that I know what what the ball's doing, that is it's fun. It allows me to kind of maybe I'll freewheel and enjoy the other aspects of people and the course more often because I'm not so worried about this new thing I'm trying to do. So yeah, that's that's kind of a don't be greedy is my my take on that. Is uh, good is good enough. Yeah, I would challenge you during this with the play less, you know, more often thing too, you know, play with a half set and that sort of stuff. And that will force you to, that will really force you to do that as you try to execute shots because you won't have every club at your hand to hit the exact yardages. And that. there's, we up at Sweetens, we played a fun game yesterday where we, from the tee box, you had to pick one club, play with that club, and your goal was to beat the number on your club, right? So you benefit by picking a higher numbered club, so like a nine <laughs> iron or eight, because then you had to beat cool. that. But then that that's is a shorter, cool. I love that. That was a shorter club, and it really, yeah, like you didn't have shots at you. You had different shots at hand, and they weren't aerial shots that you were playing, right? They were more along the ground, and because then it was more fun. Like whoever chose the lowest club, and if they beat that, they would be the winner because they also chose the lowest club, like the four iron, which is the harder one to get through. Um, yeah, to really embrace that. So that's a good one. Don't be, don't be greedy. That's serious, something, serious yeah. question. Have you ever thought about writing a, a golf performance book? Yeah. I mean, yes and no. Um, people have mentioned that, uh, I just, I don't know. Writing a book. I don't know. I don't know why I, I did the same thing in my, in my math ed world, the psychology work that I do that. I don't know if I have enough important things to say to fill a book versus, you know, blog form and all that. Like, I don't know. W- words have never been a problem. Do you need a co-author? I can, yeah. I can give you a bunch of shit to say. <laughs> you just make it sound smart. 
That's uh, yeah, maybe maybe someday. <laughs> I don't know. I, no, I just I've always I think, and I'm not alone in this. Many of our listeners love hearing you uh, talk about performance in the game of golf, and not just like because it's. I think you get the psychology of it behind not just the uh, the score, not just the score. Like there's also just like how does it make you feel? Are you enjoying shooting lower numbers? Are you enjoying the process you're going through to get better? Like I, that's that's what I love about your perspective on it. Yeah, maybe someday. Maybe, maybe you'll out. you'll push, or maybe we'll co-author a piece, and we can just go oh, back and forth on it. We we know we don't have publisher, Jim. Thanks for listening. <laughs> um, We'll, we'll consider him already signed on. I'm the good friend. I'm bringing in more business. Let's <laughs> uh, get to the Heathland. You did you did no research for me. Uh, I, I a precursor, a couple things to note. Um, Wait, I, professor I, and I, I, I'm going to call exception that I actually I, I've done more research than you in one way, and then I, I've personally talked to someone about one of these courses that oh. owns the course. So, no way, really. Okay. So, shout no, out to the Addington perfect. and Ryan Nodes and the Nodes family who have uh, Ryan Nodes, great, great guy. Hopefully, our crew that goes over, hopefully, he'll be around and get to meet him. Um, him and his family, they uh, they own it and they help lead the the awesome renovation that was done by some uh, pretty good people. That's really cool. Yeah, of course. You're you're only the professor's only that's, one. That's all I got from I'm everybody done. in the golf world. I'm done now. No, that's, the all the, that's all the research I did. <laughs> no, that's one of the sleepers on our list. And so uh, I, I bored everybody in our last episode, our first half of the England discussion uh, with with the kind of the golf boom in England, right? And we talked about uh, Linksland in the northwest and northeast and then downland they call it which is the southeast coast that's the first half of our international trip in 2025 uh moreland which is kind of the bogs in the lowland in the high kind of mountainous range and uh, obviously parkland uh, which we're more accustomed to here in the u.s but the heathland is really you know we, we hear it i think uh it's probably of the places people go lynx golf is obviously the, the winner there, right? Whether you consider abandoned dunes on the coast of the Pacific Ocean or you're going to St. Andrews, the home of golf, or you're going to the uh, the, the ranges of, of coastline in Ireland. And th- that's where people gravitate because of, I think, well, the great land, that the sand, the dunes, the ocean, the views. I mean, it's obvious. Uh, Heathland doesn't get as much attention. However, you know, in this golf boom, uh, 18 of those original clubs, which all pretty much are the ones that uh, are, are four or five that we're going to be visiting, um, exist in this Surrey, Berkshire sand belt. It's a sand belt, you know? And I, I had to mm-hmm. like research a little bit about this, but that's what Heathland is. There's sand underneath it. It wasn't just like Lynx Golf. It wasn't great for vegetation. It wasn't good for uh, agriculture. So they they repurposed it for other things. And a lot of Heathland was used for uh, cattle and and livestock and things like that. Uh, They obviously moved things around for the golf course. I found it interesting that, you know, Heathland, if, um, so it's an acidic soil like sand, but if left unkept, there's definite uh, forestry can can over, mm-hmm. overtake it very quickly, and and I thought that was interesting. And so you don't have you know s- some of these courses are very tree lined, but mm-hmm. underneath those trees are are uh, sandy soils that are great for the game of golf. Firm, fast. That most of them play firm and fast, and uh, uh, you know really reduces the cost of 
of uh, maintenance and what you have to pay from a drainage and irrigation standpoint. And some of them are better than others too, is what I'm kind of gathering in, in that regard. Some of them take on some more parkland characteristics and some of them take on more Langsland characteristics. But I think, you know, what I was reading about this, I was trying to think to myself, well, where are the heathlands of the U.S.? You know, mm. I, any, any come to mind, Kevin, that you think like would, would follow similar characteristics to what I just described? I mean, that would have to be the Pinehurst through Aiken stretch. Um, you know, I'm thinking definitely like I know Old Barnwell um, that's recently opened and, and everybody needs to check out if you haven't been there yet. Um, I know it gets Heathland comparisons, um, but then I'd be definitely, you know, well, Aiken Golf Club, um, Palmetto, Palmetto being kind of unique in its own thing because being a McKenzie as well. Maybe old school Augusta, um, new school Augusta is definitely, I would say, more, I don't know, it feels more Parkland um, in terms of its design and, and playability characteristics. But then all the pine, a lot of the Piners courses, I would imagine. I don't know the American comparison to Heathland. Not that there's fundamental differences in terms of some of the strategic designs on them and that sort of stuff, but I feel like playability and everything would maybe, maybe be consistent yeah. with that. Yeah, yeah, because there's also a climate. Like when you get down into uh, Florida, you have you know the resorts, the Stream Song, Cabot Citrus Farms are talking about. Mm, yeah, Cabot. Yeah, but but just from a climate standpoint, it's also stickier grass, Bermuda grasses, and you. you Probably not a lot of the same characteristics. The only other, I, I went straight where you did, like this Aiken emergence is really cool to see. I think we're maybe discovering our next Heathlands example. Mm-hmm. And then, um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, Sand Valley, where we did a mm-hmm. whole episode mm-hmm. a couple yeah. Yeah. shows ago uh, about our summer medal at Sand Valley. And it's like, well, certainly mountains of sand up there. And I think, you know, that that grass too would probably be more indicative of what you're going to see here in the Heathlands. But uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's obviously it's a special place, and these car- these courses are very well regarded, and um, I- I'm just so excited. I mean, there's so many we could start on, uh, kind of just to re- start with the list in this Surrey area, which Surrey is. I don't know what suburb we could relate it to. Surrey just seems like a very affluent area of mm-hmm. uh, of this region, so a lot of. Um, I'm sure aristocratic folks join or members of these clubs and uh, just outside of, of London. But, um, but these clubs, I think the other thing to say is like, they're definitely more expensive than the coast. And a lot of that has to do with population. But when you compare it to our US cities and clubs, and I was looking at this a little bit from a green fee perspective, I mean, well, let's start with the most obvious thing. You can't just walk on to Wingfoot. You can't just roll up to <laughs> Chicago Golf Club. You know, you're you're not getting on L.A. Uh, uh, country club. So, um, I think it's accessible. Which let's let's give a round of applause for every one of these courses on this list that they're open to both golf societies. So, golf societies that operate out of London do get days to play at these these clubs. Uh, obviously, I'm a huge proponent for that. And then visitors like us, visitors who are willing to pay an elevated greens fee. I mean, these aren't cheap places to play golf. They're expensive, but it's accessible and they could probably charge double of what the rates uh, that I've at least um, researched. And and that's kind of, I just think there's got to be restraint. And a lot of that probably also comes from, let's face it, like cultural 
I think yeah. you know Brits are definitely a bit more. They're not as flashy. They don't need to have Augusta green type conditions. I think they're very proud of these golf courses. Is my is my guess, and their maintenance practices because they're on a sand belt. They've been able to control it over the decades, so that over the centuries, so that it doesn't run away from them. And then they have these just e- extravagant um, uh, uh, budgets, and they have these massive costs that have to be, you know, subsidized by membership dollars and and really extravagant greens fees. Um, so, anyways, it's kind of like an overarching thought on this area of the golf world. Uh, good, good, and some bad, but all mostly very good. I I think. Yeah, you always wonder how much, how fortunate the the UK courses are, like even those that are Heathland or Parkland style, in terms of their culture influences when you think about what they see on TV or what they experience by and large with golf courses, especially influenced by the Linkland courses and the down with Brown attitude and that being embraced versus, you know, the the pinnacle here is like obviously Augusta National is held up as the... Uh, the, this is the this is the upper echelon of golf, and you just you wonder how that trickles down the courses like these, that, especially in these affluent um, groups. Um, obviously, in the affluent groups in America, Augusta Nationals, the crown jewel over there. Uh, I truly wonder what is there. Like, do they even have a crown jewel course? They think about that you know spreads maybe implicitly. They don't even realize how much it spreads through the ethos of the golf. Yeah. So there's a, there's a number of courses to talk through, and we'll try to keep more brief on these uh, for, for this go around, but we have Swinley Forest, St. George's Hill, Woking, Walton Heath, Huntercombe, The Addington, and then Sunningdale, new and old. Um, and so there's going to be a mix of that for uh, those of you that are interested in, in new club members going on our international trip. There's going to be a mix of this for sure. Uh, those schedules for 2025 aren't released yet. So we don't know Exactly. We won't be able to do all of them uh, unless we really put our foot to the gas and uh, figured out how to get from course to course and play 36 holes each day. Um, but there'll be a uh, uh, probably five of, of this mix in, in our itinerary. Um, so let's just start at the top. The one I want to start with is Swinley Forest. And the reason I want to start with is because I love Harry, Colt, Harry Colt's quote, um, this is my least bad course. A very humble, humble yeah. man, but he built it in 1909. So it's one of the early guys. Uh, it's a top 50 golf course in the world. It's number four in England. Shout out to top 100 golf courses. I, I think when you're looking for concise, good research, that's not just uh, high level. It tells you a little bit of both club history, club architecture, kind of membership, what makes it special. I, I think top 100 does a really great job at that. Um, so on top 100 golf courses, they're number four in the country of England. Uh, the, I I thought this was interesting. It's an eccentric club. Get this. They had no captain for 100 years. They had no scorecard for 100 years. Did they have a club structure? Like, I mean, a formal club structure or was it just, it just, I mean, they had members and, and, like it what? started with a lot of uh, you know lords and and ladies and dukes and earls, uh, so I don't know if it was eccentric for the reason that they were they need, they had a requirement to be very private, um, but yeah, it sounds like a it was an interesting place for for a century. I like the no scorecards idea. That's uh, 
I mean, if you're playing a simple game, especially in a match play game, scorecards are thoroughly unnecessary. Yeah, and I, I had to do a couple additional searches on this, but yeah, I think it was like their turn of the century. They're like, you know what? We're going to release a scorecard with handicaps. And so the course wasn't like rated or anything, or at least mm-hmm. publicly rated uh, prior to that. But um, the there's a rumor that the the Lord Derby was disenchanted with uh, Sunningdale and there are no wom- women policy. So Sunningdale was was older than than Swinley and he was the one who kind of broke off to start Swinley Forest just down the street. Uh, so King Edward gave him the land to uh, to build Swinley Forest. So we're talking about kings and queens here. I mean, it's um, it's royalty. I would say, but yet not a royal golf course that we still need to dig in, dig yeah, into. WTF? Right? If 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 King Edward gives you the land, you think that's enough to get the royal patronage? You think? Uh, this is another one too. I know you are very much in favor of, uh, you know, anything that's not seventy-two hundred yards par seventy-two championship golf. This is a par sixty-nine, sixty-four hundred yards. Mm. Mm. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and then I had talked to, to a friend that's played here and he said, you know, it's one of those places that it, it, if you were going back in time, it feels very much like it fell asleep a hundred years ago and it's still the, the way it always was. Like you, you kind of, um, not it, it's, it, it, he said like, you don't walk on eggshells per se, cause now they're very open and very, you know, I think the, the UK clubs in my experience that are, uh, robust memberships and, and privately focused with some public access. They're they're very direct about your expectations for your day. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I really appreciate that. I like that they're very clear on what it is to be a guest at Swinley. Um, and uh, and he said, yeah, it's a very kind of walking back into time. I think I, I like that about both the Scots and the Brits, right? The, just the bluntness that exists um, within them where if you're doing something that they don't like or whatever, you're probably going to be told about it. Not in a way that's offensive either. I mean, it's stern. Don't get me wrong. It is stern and to the point, but not in a, oh my gosh, you're offending me and how dare you. It's a, no, we don't do things this way. This is how we do things. Right. Um, Right. Rather than, I mean, if you think about our country club structure, the passive aggressive, like, let's not tell the person they're doing something wrong. Let's rather, you know, rumors go around, tell everybody else about it and then maybe the board about it. Now they get a letter and... You know, this change and that. policy so that we don't have to confront them about it. You know, women play at this time and kids play at that time. It's like, yeah, come on, yeah. Tell tell people what you want. Tell mm. people what you're expecting. Yep, and that's, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So that is a strength of them for sure. Let's talk about uh, another Harry Colt, 1913, Saint George's Hill. So not Royal Saint George. We'll be playing that as well, the open host out on the Southeast coast, but the non-royal St. George's Hill. Uh, so top 100 in the world, number nine in the uh, country of England. It was originally built to have homes on the fairway. I love, I mean, we're talking 1913, I guess uh, the house on the fairway, you mean not on the fairway, but like <laughs> down the, yeah. the line in the fairway, right? Yeah, sorry. Yes, yes. Like like uh, development. It was it was intended to have a development which fell through, which I thought was good like, for them. <laughs> Best yeah. thing ever happened for that golf course. You know, think about that industrial revolution. The the uh, London is booming. People are living with wealth that they never imagined, and there was 
the, the temptation was there, professor. People thought, hey, people seem to really like this golf now. Maybe we could sell some homes on these fairways. But thank God it fell through because as we know from our experience in the 2000s, that can produce some pretty terrible golf courses. That's right. Uh, not that they all are, but let's face it, it was not a good decade for, for uh, compelling, interesting golf. Um, the land no, here at St. George's Hill, I mean, I think it's in the name. It's more dramatic is what I understand mm -hmm. uh, than the rest of the, the Heathland. So there's a lot of elevation change. And uh, the one, again, the same friend that has played uh, all these courses, actually, or most of them, uh, he said when the, the, the view around the clubhouse is awesome, like kind of surreal. You're walking into a storybook with a panoramic view. So you, I guess the clubhouse, they must have had the foresight to put it somewhere high uh, because you get to really take it in. It's supposed to be special. Huh. And now they're, I mean, it's a very high regard, of course, but they're not, they're not selling with that, right? Don't they have a, a renovation coming along? Or not, maybe not renovation, but plans about something? Um, That's right. Brian Schneider. Am I right on that? Renaissance. Yeah, Renaissance and and uh I think it'll be it'll be restored or the new master plan will be already in effect by the time if this is on our, our rotation, uh he'll be the one doing the work. Oh, that's awesome. Um obviously very good hands with, with Brian and that you have to imagine with the dramatic land at St. George's Hill, like in terms of its regional um place in golf just by regional i'll include um scotland in the uk like dramatic land isn't always the feature of a lot of the stronger golf courses over there right especially the linksland courses there's some dramatic features but not the land itself um so you have to imagine you know that's restored in a in a very um authentic and productive way then that'll, that'll even make it stand out more than it already does the next on the itinerary is Woking, which great name uh, predates all these. I think it's the oldest course that we play on maybe the entire trip, but it's 1893 and it was the first experimental Heathland golf course. So before that, and again, back to the me boring everybody with the history of the English golf boom, but uh, golf wasn't, they didn't know, because again, this was livestock, cattle, feeding all the people of London. They didn't know that this this land was covered in heather and gorse, which if you've read Dream Golf and Mike Kaiser discovering all the the, the gorse and heather that was out in Bandon, everybody else thought the same thing. Like, how would you ever build a golf course in this mess? I mean, this stuff is nasty. And he, being the golfer that's been to all these wonderful places and knows the gorse bush well, usually underneath gorse bushes is good, great land for golf. And so uh, this was some of the, the history on Tom Dunn. They were like, oh, was he, come on, golf out here? Nah, you got to go to the coastline. You got to play in the parks. Like, that, that ain't going to work. Um, obviously, he was correct. So I thought that was a cool little bit of history on Woking. Uh, your friend Bernard Darwin. Mm. Let's get a, we haven't had a quote from him in a while. He said, the stars of sand and heather when he spoke of Woking, although my judgment may not be strictly an impartial one, I think he was a member for a long time, mm -hmm. I think it is still the pleasantest of all upon which to play, and the golf is undeniably interesting. So Darwin was uh, 
was a member there for more than 60 years. Where wasn't uh, he a member? Do we? I know. This guy, <laughs> this guy, he's, he's, what a golf life. Do we think Darwin, how many bag tags in today's world, the, the version of Darwin, would we? Would he be no, bag tag wearer or would he be the most, no, the most? I, I uh, don't know, but I won't accept that he's a bag tag Barry. I won't let you do that. To, to Sir Bernard the bar, Bernard Bernard the bag tag bag tag Bernard no <laughs> bag I don't think so not gonna not gonna succumb to that I think he was he was a, a you know, carried his bag probably took a caddy when when needed and um, I think he was there for the the enjoyment of it no I, I agree with you I'm, I'm making that statement out of just being envious of the number of places that he was a, a esteemed member um, of right that not only was he he was not a member of these clubs just to be a member and tick a box, right? He was always a very participating member uh, of golf in general and positively influential on the game. And I'm sure within the clubs that he was a member, he was maybe other people might not have liked him in the sense of that, you know, he had his, his opinions and conviction. Um, but I have no doubts he made his clubs better um, by being a member and being influential within them. Um, probably someone that we, most members in the United States should know more about in terms of who he was and how he, he perceived golf in the place of clubs. I, I'd like to do a whole deep dive on Bernard Darwin if you're up for it, maybe yeah. in the, the new year. Um, I, I obviously know uh, some of his writing and, and know where he's been now at, at different points in his life. But yeah, I think what I love about going back and reading people, you know, his work, a lot of his work is what a hundred years old or, yeah. or getting close to it. It's timeless. Golf is timeless. It truly is a timeless pastime. And, and so I, I love reading those words from so long ago with equipment that is, you know, you should be very unrelatable and then you read the words and it's the most relatable thing ever. Mm-hmm. So I, I really enjoy uh, those, those classic pieces. So I think we should, let's do that. Let's do a deep yeah. dive on it. two more things on uh, Woking. 6,600 yards, so another one that you know, small can't extend part. much further. Driver's not needed is what my buddy said. Just uh, you know, get your get your driving iron out, position your way around it, and you'll still have an absolute blast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here's a little deeper dive on, on the history side. Everyone listening knows I'm an absolute homer for golf societies. It, what led me, my participation in golf societies in Ireland is what led me to starting new club, discovering the golf societies of Scotland and St. Andrews. It just in, added to that inspiration. And so I will, I will always enjoy a good story about golf societies. Well, the Moles Golfing Society, which where do these names come from? But the Moles Golfing Society that played out of Woking as well as a couple other clubs in this area, uh, they did a exhibition match. So these aren't professional golfers. One of them, these are amateur golfers, but one of the players was the, the top player on the Walker Cup, uh, the, the, I was about to say European Walker Cup team, but it's not European. It's the uh, Great Britain and Ireland, mm-hmm. UK and Ireland, uh, right, Walker Cup team. And so he set up an exhibition match against the Bobby Jones-led Walker Cup in 1926. It was at Woking against Moles Golfing Society. They absolutely waxed the Walker Cup team, the U.S. Walker Cup. That was just studly. And and that team destroyed, the U.S. destroyed the, uh, U- the British, the U.K. and Ireland team. And now, and so I just love that story. Like just some podunk golf society. He's like, come on, Bill. 
you know, Bill's an accountant and Jerry's a, a bartender. Hey, we're playing Bobby Jones and the U.S. Walker Cup team on Thursday. Come on out. What do, what do we think? What's your hypothesis of how that went down? I'm imagining a combination of things. One, crazy pins. Like yes. <laughs> checking out the course. Yes. Maybe some weather involved. But I'm going with the most likely thing. They brought, hey, we're going to be hosts. We got to host you guys. Come in for that late breakfast, early lunch. And I bet they got that American Walker <laughs> Cup team snookered. Just totally snookered. Like, yes. all right, now let's go play the match. And they'd been all drinking water and they'd been just pumping the Walker Cup team full of whatever liquor they wanted to. And those guys couldn't even see straight. That's, that's I'm yeah. going with something like that. I think so too. I think it was definitely a superintendent's advantage there, a home course advantage. Um, but I, I love that. I love that story. I, at some point, that's what I want to do. I want to do a, a thorough investigation of all these one-off golf societies across the British Isles. And because they, they got a story to be told. They don't have the the storied history of these golf courses, right? Because they met yeah. in the pub and they met at the schoolhouse and they met at the church. But stories like that, stories like taken on by they have those. And and frankly, New Club has those now. And it's like uh, that's a story in itself. But I, I'd like to go back and and find as much as it exists about that. I, I've not met a historian that like specialized in that yet, but uh, that would be of major interest to me. I feel like we need to set up a little new club Atlanta versus the UGA golf team match sometime. <laughs> yes, that, yes, that would and probably see, be and see, like, let's figure out, we'll take them up to, I don't know, Sweetens. We'll have the super, we'll work with them to set it up. And uh, yeah, yeah they're, got, they're not all you know, drinking age, so we'll, we'll avoid that tactic. But uh, we'll, we'll figure just, out how to get in their head a little bit. Oh, I love that. I love that. Craig, Craig Mykoski taking down the next Brian Harmon. That's right. right. Uh, let's move on to Walton Heath. Walton Heath, the the host of the 2023 uh, British Women's Open. Um, that I watched that on TV quite that a bit actually. Great event watch. Pretty dang good. And I understand this is a tough track. Like people, I mean, mm-hmm. just from watching on TV, I could very clearly see the shot values. Like I don't think this is the course you take. Um your uh your your high high handicappers to you know have have the most playable day like i think there is some force carries from what i gathered on television of uh the purple heather which is gorgeous i mean Mm -hmm. that's in the we'll be there in the spring i don't know if we're gonna have the purple heather but uh it it really is beautiful like in this this course especially on tv was like wow that is uh not like flowery beautiful i I, heather is just a kind of different it's a native grass obviously to that area uh, I just think it adds a lot of aesthetic beauty to it. But 1902, built by Herbert Fowler. Most people don't know this. Great uncle of Richard Fowler uh, on the PGA Tour. Number 14 in England. Th- that was a lie, Professor. I see you nodding your head. I was just saying, I'm like, I'm, like, I'm <laughs> like, this seems suspect. <laughs> <laughs> How many people believe that? If you believe that out there, thank you. Thank you, you for your you trust. Th- I won't abuse it again. That's the key. You know, there's no line or truth. It's just speaking like you know what you mean. And then uh, then people (laughs) listen to you. Tons and tons of history at Walton Heath. James Braid was the head golf professional from 1902 to 1950. Uh, The Duke of Windsor, who later became King Edward. uh, One of the King Edwards. Can't remember what number. Maybe six, seven, or eight. uh, While he was captain of Walton Heath. Uh, But again... Where's the royal charter, professor? We, yeah, I'm, this makes no sense. 
That's part of the, the resolution bottom. on reading. What was on my second resolution of reading about this Royal, royal Golf uh, designation and if, like re- figuring out what kind of little shady sideways handshakes occur um, behind the scenes on this. If your club captain becomes the King of England and you don't get royal patronage, what, 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 how? Come yeah. on. What is the rules here, England? Uh, Winston Churchill played his golf at Walton Heath. Hmm. Um, wonder what he was like to play with. I bet you he, I'm going to go out on a limb. I would say I would not enjoy playing golf with Winston Churchill. I'm just going to, I'm just going to. You don't think that. the golf course is like his, his like recusion no, from the world I, where he just went there and like became a different dude, person or you just think. He was a war guy. He, I bet you he, if he was down in a match, he would just be pissy moaning, yeah. you know, just mumbling through his cigar. I, yeah, I, I that a total speculation, obviously, because I have a lot of admiration for uh, Winston Churchill. But I've read a couple books um, about his time in South Africa, in particular, where he was a little bit of a he was a tough guy to to get along with. Okay, a lot of the greats are. <laughs> uh, the 1981 Ryder Cup was here. Uh-huh. This was known famous. You know what the 1981 Ryder Cup was? It was known for a, a few things, but uh, uh-huh. one in particular. I, I I think this is the one that generated the European, not resurgence, but the European re- restructuring, whatever you want to call it. And there was a European Ryder Cup. Was was who was the team Euro- European at that yeah. point? Right? It yeah, just, it was. It, 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 yeah, it had to be. This, yeah. So this was like, let's get our crap together and like let's build a team to beat the U.S. Like they they lost this one and they lost it. I don't know if it was bad, but like something it was bungled like they did not do well there was no connection on the team or whatever this like after this event is when they changed their approach to the Ryder cup to say no like we're going to be strategic with this and we're going to be a team and that's how we're going to beat the u.s by being a team Uh, i know that about it i don't know what else any specifics other than that this is when the tides turned yeah because they went european and they still got drummed and then uh, th- it was a Seve snub. So Seve oh, okay. was in the he U.S. Got- playing most of his golf. And so they didn't put Seve on this team. He was young. He was playing. He was obviously one of the best players in the young world. Young and brash, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they didn't like it. They probably, you know, a little bit of that Tiger effect is what I, I gather from from where Seve was early in his career where people just didn't love, you know, it's the traditional game of golf that you have to behave a certain way. And Seve's out there behaving a very different way. And Be very different. Uh, <laughs> And he was playing in America, which he, it's, it's like actually that. a, it's a fascinating read about Seve's American time. It was mm. very much fueled by agents and money and, and, uh, kind of a cash grab that made him oh, miserable. Wow. But, uh, but yeah, he got snubbed from the team. So think about that. I bet you that was his motivation. Like, screw you guys. I'll show you. I'm not only going to make this team, I'm going to transform this team. And we're going to be unstoppable for decades. I mean, that is, that's, that's kind of neat. But yeah, that was the last time they didn't have Sevi on the team. Uh, and I think that's it on, on Walton Heath. They're a, oh, what? they're a jacket place, aren't they? I, I think I had a friend playing the British AM over there or something like that. And uh, they are, yeah. Speaks exactly. very highly of Walton Heath and that all. How, the, how do you feel about that? The, the whole tie and jacket club. So what I mean by that was, uh, Kevin, you're you're right. You had to wear a tie and jacket to sit down and have lunch. Um, what, what are your thoughts on on that? You know, I don't I don't have a fundamental problem with it. Like if it's part of the, I, I think, and we've had this conversation before in terms of it's just how it's enacted, what's its purpose, and why is it there, right? If this is like 
just part of the ridiculousness of being a part of a club, I think that's a good thing. We're like, this is what we do, and it's treated in that way. Like, it's you're not admonished if you don't show up in that. It's like, no, you need to wear a jacket and tie, and here we'll provide you one for this day. Keep this in mind going forward, like that sort of thing. If it's not being done to be exclusive and kick people out, it's just part of no, to be part of this community. This is what we do. You know, any all all great societies thrive off of common shared um, actions. And I, and I like it when a place does that, um, you know, if it's handled in that way, if it's a way, oh, you don't have your jacket and tie, sorry, you know, come back next time. If it's handled in that way, I think that's that's a little inappropriate. Um, you know, like I, I like, the, like the new club, like they gift you a tie with your membership, right? So like right. you don't have an excuse like, oh, I can't afford a tie or whatever. It's like, no, you, we've given you a tie. So when you come have dinner here, like a formal sit-down dinner, you need to wear that tie. Like I appreciate yeah. that, that sort of decorum and, and and sacrificing a part of your individualism for the society or group that you've joined. I cannot add anything to that description. I think that that is exactly how I feel too. When it supports the tradition and the connection to a place and its history, that's that's under that's great. But it needs to be explained to people who, um, you know, uh, might be visiting for reasons that they didn't know about that, but they're going to leave there with that appreciation for it. And, mm-hmm. and but you have to uh, clearly explain it. Make sure it's delivered in a way that they 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 get it. So they're a part of it and not um, not this like you know um, authority f- yeah. version of it. That's like no, you 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 you, you know um, make people feel good about it versus bad. Uh, Hunter comb. So we got two more. Hunter comb. It's uh, top one hundred in England. Lesser known, I would say. Um, Willie Park Jr. So, so for our Chicago members, Olympia Fields and Flossmore and some places that he built really just after this. I think Willie Park Jr. is another one to dig in on. You know, he, he built a lot of courses in England and he was uh, a phenomenal player, winner of the, the Opens. Obviously, it's Jr. Not his father won Opens as well. But then he got around. You know, how many guys, other than like Harry Colt yeah. and, and Willie and a couple others, how, how many guys do courses in the uk and then came over to the u.s you know not yeah, that a, many that's a boat ride right back then like had to come over like that wasn't just oh i'd come over here and do some courses and go home like to come over was that that was a decision in and of itself yeah yeah so 1901 uh they say it sparked a revolution in inla- inland design i don't know why but that's this one of the quotes i found um the uh oh this one is one of the most preserved and and <laughs> i've seen this play out even in our generation or our time so it's honeycomb was whatever its geography it just didn't get um as much exposure to the really affluent membership so it was always a bit less uh park and honeycomb they fell on on hard financial times so they were the original developers of the golf course i suppose you call them um and their housing development, again, housing development that wasn't on the course, but near it, it completely fell through. And ironically, it's what made Huntercombe, you know, one of the most preserved uh, of this early area. A, a lot of these other courses still had dollars to uh, make changes and updates and people wanted, you know, you know how memberships Got go it. and committees work. Uh, well, Huntercombe didn't really have the luxury of that. And so... Uh, they they went through, I think, a restoration that was, I can't remember, I don't have my notes here on who did it, but their comment was like, oh my God, we have a, uh, 
you know, it's here, it's all here. And, and they, they were able to use the same landforms and it had the same strategy, but really kind of tighten it up. And it only, it's another one only stretches to 6,300 yards, but, uh, those that have played it said it's a absolute blast. Oh, that's, it's amazing how many times that phrasing is used with that 62, the 6,600 golf course, right? Absolute blast, fun, engaging, interesting, all of those things, right? That that seems, seems to be a sweet spot on yardage in terms of letting a course shine and and really engaging the brain. We talked about it with Sedge Valley up at Sand Valley for our summer medal. Like that's, you know, that we're not seeing that type of development. And I think, as I mentioned on that show, what if that becomes, you know, of our our renovations? What if what if there's a way to take some of these housing development courses and turn them into something smaller, bite-sized. That mm-hmm. is just compelling and fun. And uh, I don't know. I, I feel like three-hour rounds, it, it doesn't, 18 holes, three-hour rounds, that could be something. It really yeah. should. It really, really could take off. Uh, and then here's your friends. We, got, we, get, we wrap it all up with a nice bow on the Addington. Uh, number 58 in England. It's a 1914 John Abercrombie, he's dear friends with Fitch. You may know. No, I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm stretching now. Shout out Columbus, Ohio, and uh, all the uh, <laughs> the clothing that we were told as kids that you had to wear to, to fit in and be part of the in crowd, right? Like that was, that's what you had so, to wear with, the, with when, your 10 squirts of cologne. Yeah, when, when, when some shirtless 15-year-old is standing outside of a, sh- a store in t- inside of a rural mall and spraying you with cologne, you're like, oh, God, I got I to gotta wear this now. <laughs> uh, those that, I, if there's anyone younger or older listening to this show, they're kind of like, what the hell are they talking about? Um, so it started as 36 holes, new and old. Uh, it rivaled Sunningdale in that manner. So this was, if you look at the years, you asked this question on our last episode. If you look at the years these courses were built, the later they were built, the more people started to build more holes. So a lot of them started with nine holes in the early 1900s. But then the later, closer to the 20s, people were building 18 and 36 because the land was there, but also the difference being the golfers were there. And it was this meteoric rise of the popularity of golf and bicycles, as we learned on that episode. People were just playing. Nice. Uh, people say it's one of the best drain, draining courses, which I always love uh, to hear that. What's your course? This is, I think this is a key thing. I want to add this to new club spirit courses in some way. When it rains and you're looking to play a round of golf, what's, the, what's your go-to course? Oh, when it rains, where I'm at here in Athens, you're saying, what would be, yeah, what's my go-to Georgia. course? I mean, we're in Georgia on clay. <laughs> I know. You guys let's not, let's not kid question. ourselves here. Like, whatever I say, it's not going to be like, oh, I'm going to go, f-, you know, dream world. I'll just drive over the Aiken, play Aiken Golf Club because it's, you know, on the sand belt there. So it drains, it drains somewhat well. But no, Athens Country Club, actually, we do pretty well on drainage. Um, the drainage has been built into the course. It's got enough of land movement. That water does run a little bit and doesn't sit. You know, there's some low areas that does sit in, but overall, you know, that's where I'm going to, I'm going to play. Now it is a Georgia clay, you know, it's on the Georgia soil. So it's not anything to write home about in terms of the rain, but, um, our super does a good job and the drainage built in does a, does a good job of moving water. So it's, you're not walking in mud or anything like that. It's just sort of the damp Bermuda that you'd expect. 
I'll give two shout outs to two courses that drain exceptionally well. One is uh, south of Chicago, just across the Indiana border, Sandy Pines. It's in the name. Sandy, Sandy Pines. Pines. Just a really, it's, it's not only game. that, yeah, it's, it's bit cart centric. There's a couple holes that you got to make a little bit of a stretch, but you can walk it. Uh, and when it rains, it drains great. It's based, I mean, uh, one of my favorites. And then the other one is uh, Akron, Ohio, Turkey Foot. Yeah, Turkey Foot. I remember that always draining. Well. Not until I returned home as a, a wiser man did I realize how fun that course really is and uh, how well it drains. So shout out to those two. If you got a, I think every golfer needs to have a course, a public course in their back pocket that when it rains, they're the first and, and they still want to play. They, they There's a course you call first because let's face it, firmness of the turf has a lot That's, to do with our how fun it is out there. And yep. slogging through, like if you're a walker, slogging through mud, it just takes so much out of you, yeah. so much more out of you. Yep. All right, so that's our list of Heathland golf courses for the 2025 International um, to, to England. Uh, last thing I forgot to mention on the Addington, Clayton, DeVries, and DuPont. Mm-hmm. They have a master plan that they are in the throes of, and uh, they call it a, a Rembrandt found in the attic. Uh, so, yeah, go look, crew. If you, you know, I'm sure most people listening haven't heard of the Eddington unless they're on Twitter and like in the golf world. But go on Twitter, even those that don't use it, and find the Eddington account. They're pretty active on there, and you can go look. And they they're doing a really good job of showing old pictures, then you know, recent pictures, and now renovated pictures to show just the differences and changes and how they really try to go back to. Um, you know, do a true, a pretty good restoration renovation. Uh, it's stunning. Some of the pictures, really good land movement, just beautiful looking golf course. And I think, you know, my gut and I'm biased, uh, knowing Ryan a little bit and what a good guy he is, but my gut says this course is going to rise up the rankings, um, in terms of that region, um, as it settles in and more people play it, especially with Clayton DeVry and DuPont doing it. I mean, those there's, there's, Few people I would consider to, to build a golf course or, or renovate a golf course, and they're definitely in that circle that I would say, you know, here you go. I don't need to even talk to you. Go do it. Like, I know you're going to do a bang-up job, and I can't wait to see how great it's going to be. You know who we forgot? I, I totally forgot about Sunningdale. Probably oh, yeah. the most well-known of all, of all the courses on this list. Uh, I forgot to mention Sunningdale. They, I think it was... Uh, Solly with no laying up that did a little piece on the Heathland courses. And I'm pretty sure he said, this is the most, the, the best 36 hole facility, 36 holes of golf you could possibly play in the same place. That's what I, I remembered from his video on that. But, um, but yeah, it, it's another one. It's amazing. This, this area is blessed. Yeah. I mean, it's Josh Ralston who we've had on the pod and, Matt and I are friends with, and you know, he lives in North or Edinburgh and plays on North Berwick and gets to do all that. He says there, there is an argument that this region, especially when you're just taking the heavy hitters from a concentration standpoint, arguably the best in the world. And he's going to spend some time in Australia on a, a little sabbatical that he's going on. So he's going to be able to report back about that. He'll be one of the few people in the world that have played, you know, all three very recently um, regions. So we'll have to maybe get him on a pod to say, okay, concentration and your your heavy hitters. Obviously, I think Scotland, the Linksland wins in terms of just quantity of great golf. But if you say let's just take the top eight or top seven, you know, five, 
who's going to win. I think there's an argument that this Heathland area um, might be the best in the world. Wow. Wow. That's a uh, high praise from a guy that is well-versed on a lot of areas in the, in the world where you can play golf. Well, Professor, I think that rounds us up. Oh, last thing. I know we've been picking on the Royal, uh, the Royal Mark, the Royal patronage for these English courses, but uh, one naming convention I, I really do love, and this is in Sunningdale, uh, and obviously being called New Club, I'm biased. But uh, when these places had, you know, more than one, I love that there's there's so many iterations of them saying, "Well, what's that court?" Like we're Sunningdale Golf Club, but now what's that court? We just built another court. What's that one? I was like, "Oh, that's the old one." You know, that's that's 1901. That's the old course. It's like, oh, okay, so this is the new course. Yeah, it's 1923 now. Come on, man, get with it. It's been a decade. This is the new one. That's the old one. And I love that with uh, you and I both being members of the new golf club in St. Andrews. Like they, uh, in, in the the manifesto or the the, the history of the club, it's, it's very simply that. It's like, well, the Royal and Ancient, they're down the street. They're they're older than us, so they're the old club, and we're the new club. We're the they new club. themselves the new golf club. I love that. I think that's just so beautifully simple in a way. That's right. Simple almost always wins the game, especially when it comes to, I mean, think of it as a branding, right? Keep it simple. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Professor, happy new year to you, sir. Uh, we're, we're done with our fixtures. We're, we're moving forward now. Registrations for all these lovely events uh, come out. Obviously, we'll be in, in Northern California for our winter meeting, playing the golf courses of Alistair McKenzie here soon. Uh, Sweetens Cove, actually, I think registration will be two days from now for okay. Sweden's Cove. So jump on your computer. I, that one typically goes hot. Uh, we got two full days playing around the professor's home track, the, oh. the Sweden's Cove. And then uh, Summer Metal headed to Sand Valley Golf Resorts and the Fall Founders Cup playing the golf courses of Mike Strantz in South Carolina. Uh, and then onward to England for our international in May of 2025. Uh, I miss the pilgrimage. The pilgrimage to the home of golf in St. Andrews, of course, happens every single year. And we got a great group going there. But uh, yeah, thanks for for diving into this stuff, Professor. I think this was fun to stretch my research uh, beyond the, what what I typically already know and and learn a little bit about these places that we're going and and why we're going there because these are the places that inspire us to to bring a little something special back to our local chapters to our local golf. That's right. And thank you for doing the heavy lifting on these too. So, oh, don't worry. Well, we'll give get you the your, shout out your, on that. Uh, your research muscles are going to start flexing here soon. I know it. Thanks for uh, Titleist for uh, supporting us and supporting New Club and this show. And also, thanks to you, the listeners. If you guys enjoy these podcasts, one thing that would help the professor and I out tremendously is to review, to like, to subscribe. Uh, to the show on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast, give us a five-star review. Uh, tell, tell us that you like the Professor's sultry voice. And, uh, and, and thanks, as always, for, for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. Happy New Year.